God freely entered into a covenant of restoration and blessing with Abraham. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This covenant promise made with our fathers in faith flows effectually throughout generations. God's New Testament people are now heirs according to the promise. What God started in Genesis is now sealed and secure in Christ Jesus. The email that I received was, was kind in tone, not brash, not angry. Received this email around the Thanksgiving Christmas holidays, but the lady who wrote the email, not a member of our church, no one I had met personally, at least not that I recall, <clears throat> had visited McGregor on Easter Sunday of last year and would not be coming back, neither she nor the several members of her family that were with her that morning. Her concern, her reason for not returning is that during the course of the message that Sunday morning, Easter of all days, I had made the statement that she, actually my statement was all of us, but certainly including her, that, that she was evil. She thought she misheard me, but apparently later in the message, I reiterated that all people are evil. She wrote in her email that she had devoted much of her life to doing good things. That she considered herself a pretty good person. And that surely on Easter Sunday of all Sundays, she could, she could come to church and expect to have her goodness and earned righteousness affirmed. We wrote back two or three times and we reached that sort of impasse that I understand is, is, is labeled when we agree to disagree. <laughs> I did give her credit, she understood me clearly. Because you see, the only standard that matters is the standard whereby you will be judged, which is the standard of the absolute goodness, perfection, and holiness of Jesus Christ. And against that standard, let me be clear, you are evil. But you see, we are hardwired, you and I, our flesh, is hardwired to, to long for a, a sort of ecosystem of righteousness where we do good stuff and we gain the, the rewards of that good stuff. It is intuitive to us that we ought to get what we deserve. What's not intuitive to us is the utter standard of righteousness that, that governs this universe in which we live. The last thing you want 
is to have your life characterized and even more so your eternity characterized. The last thing you want carved on your tombstone is he got what he deserved. Abram, in Genesis chapter 14, is going to encounter a moment where the contrast could not be more stark. Before him will be set with clarity the way of gracious blessing that he does not earn and cannot deserve versus the rewards of his own successful hard work. And sometimes as we study the life of Abram, later Abraham, we're going to have to look right at a moment where the, uh, where the brother doesn't get it right. But every now and then, he reminds us why he is called in the New Testament the father of the faithful. So, we come to Genesis 14, a chapter I've entitled, The Blessing of Abram. Now, the, the first few, well, several verses of this chapter sort of set up what's coming. We're in a backdrop of, of, of sort of Mesopotamian culture. Remember, we've seen the map of the Fertile Crescent, that, that, that sort of upside-down U that comes up the valley of the Jordan River across and down into Persia. And as we begin, what we see in the first verses is an alliance of four kings from the eastern side of the Fertile Crescent has been sort of holding in bondage an alliance of five kings from the western side of the Fertile Crescent down in essentially the, the, the Dead Sea Valley. The four kings from the east have exerted dominance over the four kings from the west such that the four kings from the west spend a period of, of 12 years paying tribute to the superior power in the east. That sets up Roman number one on your outline, verses one through 12, the rebellion. First we see in verses one through four, the climate. Now in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Keraleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings, that's by the way, the kings of the, the east, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. In 12 years, they had served Keterleomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In year 13, they said, enough. We are no longer, our city-states are no longer going to pay tribute to these other city-states. That's the climate. They say, enough. We're not going to do that anymore. Which sets up, letter B on your outline, the clash. Oh, now we're going to come to blows over this. So what happens is the kings come from the east and they come up and over. You're going to see these geographical references. They come up and over the Fertile Crescent and they descend to make war in the home territory of the now rebellious kings from the west. 
The Clash, verses 5 through 10. In the 14th year, Ketelamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imin in Shabbath Kerithim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. By the way, study after study, survey after survey, places public speaking among the things that people fear most. That previous paragraph is the reason. (laughs) And if you don't think I rehearsed the fire out of that, sometimes you work hard to make it look easy. Two down, one to go. Continuing the clash. Now, I'm going to cheat. In verse 8, the, the kings from verse 2 <laughs> join battle in the valley of Siddam with verse 9, the kings from verse 1. Four kings against five. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits, bitumen pits. So the home territory of the kings that wished to throw off the yoke of the kings from the east, the the kings that were in the valley of the Salt Sea, their area was characterized by tar pits. Now you would think that they could use that to their tactical advantage, but no. It was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... Some fell into them. The rest fled to the hill country. So the clash did not go well for the kings from this western half of the Fertile Crescent. They were soundly routed. And among the things that happened to them, well, to the victors went the spoil. So we have, in verse 11 and 12, the kidnapping. The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Now, when last we encountered him a couple of weeks ago in the message Pastor Mark brought, he had gone to live near Sodom, remember? He had chosen by sight what he thought was the most desirable real estate in the promised land and had pitched his tent near Sodom. Well now, and we know from chapter 13, verse 13, that the people of Sodom were extremely evil. But now he's not living near Sodom anymore. One of the things that weaves through these chapters until we get to the culmination of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, spoiler alert, is that Lot is more and more integrating into the culture of Sodom. Now he's living there. And so he is taken. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, this is verse 12, in his possessions, and went their way. The rebellion. Roman numeral two, the rescue. The rescue. Verses 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living up in the highlands by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anar. 
these were allies of Abram. He's been making friends. By the way, that verse and that term, Abram the Hebrew, Abram the descendant of Eber, the Hebrew, that is the first use of the word Hebrew in your Bible. That's when that term gets coined right there. Abram is called a Hebrew for the first time in chapter 14, verse 13. When Abram heard that his nephew, his kinsman, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That is, he began to chase the alliance army of the four kings of the east. He began to chase them up the Jordan River Valley, up the Fertile Crescent. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath all the way north of Damascus, about 150 miles. He, he, he drove them. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Brought back everything. Now it's an oddly specific number, 318, but it's, it's one of those multiplied numbers of moments in the word of God where we see God putting, putting those whom he desires to bless in a situation where victory is not reasonably attainable. This is the invading army of the alliance of the four eastern kings. We don't know how many of them there were, but the implication is enough to defeat the home team army of five kings. It's, it's Gideon again and his a few hundred soldiers. It's the children of Israel against the mighty walled city of Jericho. It's the early adolescent David against the nine foot plus human tank Goliath. It's a victory that anybody looking on would say that victory's not gonna happen. And then when it does, one has no alternative but to acknowledge, as we will see clearly in the text in a moment, this is a supernatural victory from the hand of the living God. Did Abram use some clever tactics? Dividing, pinchering, attacking from multiple directions? Sure, Abram was no dummy. But the victory was from the hand of the living God, as we will see. But a victory is indeed won. And we come now to Roman 3, and we're beginning now to get to the heart of the matter in this passage. The return, verses 17 through 20. In verses 17 through 20, we will be briefly introduced to the lesser king of Sodom, whose name you remember is Bera, and the greater king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat, I'm in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheveth, that is the king's valley. I say the lesser king of Sodom because he comes out. Now remember, he and his guys just got whooped. And Abram just whooped the guys who whooped him. In a playoff situation, if you beat the guy that beat the guy, you're supposed to be the better guy. But I digress. <laughs> Here, Abram, the victor, meets, meets Sodom. 
who's a king, but he's a lesser king. How do we call him the lesser king? Because he doesn't even get to open his mouth yet. Because as soon as Sodom steps into the narrative, immediately behind him, the greater king of Salem steps in. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheveth, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. By the way, the first time in your Bible the term priest is used. This is the Bible's introduction of the idea of one who stands before men in the place of a holy God, which by the way, you are a priest if you are a Christian. We are a kingdom of priests. You stand before men in the place of a holy God today under the authority of our great high priest. We'll say more about that. But this is the first use of the word priest in the Bible. Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The lesser king of Sodom, his name is Bera. We learned that early in the chapter. And I know you can make too much of the names given to people in the Bible. I understand you can, you can push that too far. But the name Bera, there's some, there's some dispute over what the name precisely means. It could mean giver of gifts, which is consistent with where he's going to go in the last paragraph of this chapter. But it could also mean son of evil. I have no problem seeing, as this chapter unfolds, the king of Sodom, and as the future from here of Sodom unfolds, Bera is the evil giver of gifts. I think it fits him like a glove. Melchizedek, however, his name means king of righteousness. So he is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem means peace. So the king of righteousness and peace versus the evil giver of gifts. What do we see in this greater king of Salem? Well, first, I've doubled him one, two, three, four on your notes. You see, he represents a place. Salem is broadly agreed among scholars to be the same location in the mountains of the central spine of the land promised to Abram it's the same place as Jerusalem. Jeru in the front of that compound means foundation. The city of Jerusalem, the foundation of peace. He's the, he's the king of Salem. He represents a place that will come to have, of course, great significance. Second, he bears a picture. Now, again, one could make too much of this, but I also don't want to make too little of it. As he comes to bless Abram, he has at his options, he's a, he's a king in the high mountain valleys of, of, of the Holy Land, and there's a great deal of agriculture in those valleys. He could have brought pomegranates. He could have bought, brought grain, uh, 
in various forms. He brings bread and wine. Now, here's a pop quiz on the announcements from earlier in the service. You didn't know the pop quiz was coming, but here it is. That's why it's a pop quiz. Among the various things Brother Jonathan announced, we'll be doing something together as a church family next Sunday that we don't do every Sunday. We do it reasonably often, but not every Sunday. What, what special thing are we doing together as a body of Christ next Sunday? Communion. Communion, the Lord's Supper. The elements of which we take in memory of the sacrifice of our Messiah. Bread and wine. Melchizedek could have brought anything. This priest of the Most High God brings the elements of the Lord's Supper. You say, well, Brother Russell, you're, you're kind of taking a leap there. I'm, well, first, I'm not taking it alone. If I couldn't find any other author that had written about that, I'd hush. By the way, if you're the only one that has an idea about how to interpret a scripture, you're probably wrong. You know that, right? <laughs> Book's been around for a few thousand years and some very smart people have studied and read it. If you can't find anybody who agrees with you, yes, the problem is you. That's how cults get started. But I think there's something here. I think as we take these things to remember the sacrifice of the Savior, the first priest mentioned in the word of God brings them as a picture of a coming sacrifice. Salvation by grace through faith. God dealing with man by grace through faith because of a sacrificial Savior who would come. I think it's a picture. Third, there's a, there is a priesthood here. Now, I'm going to unfold this a bit more fully. I can't unfold it absolutely fully. There's so much there. But I'm going to touch upon this priesthood of Melchizedek. There's an entire chapter of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7, that speaks much of the priesthood of Melchizedek. But here I will say this. A couple of things worth noting. First, Melchizedek is not a Hebrew. Oh! <gasps> As, as students of the Bible, we look back and there can be a tendency on our part to compact and oversimplify the Old Testament as God's dealings specifically with the Hebrew people. And I'll give you that the center of Old Testament narrative does flow along the lines of God's dealings with and through the Hebrew people. But it was never God's intent to do anything but reach every tongue, tribe, and nation with his word, with his grace, with his gospel. There's no indication that old Melchizedek and Abram had ever met. And yet Melchizedek has been set aside as a priest of the Most High God who is. By the time we get into the Old Testament, and most of it, the priesthood is the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood begun by Aaron, brother of Moses, descending through the Levites, the tribe of Levi. The Levitical priesthood is the priesthood of the Old Testament temples. But by the time we get to the ministry of Jesus, that priesthood is a joke. 
Israel is no longer worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they give lip service. And even the very high priesthood is in the hands of the ultra-political, unbelieving Sadducee party, and the high priests are being chosen by the Romans as those who will play ball most effectively with the Roman Empire. The priesthood of Aaron came to be a joke and then came to be abandoned and today is non-existent. And yet Jesus is our high priest. But he is not the priesthood of the system of the law. He's not even a Levite. He's not eligible to be a priest under the system of the law. Oh no, no, no. Jesus is a priest forever after the older, by grace through faith order of the priest Melchizedek. He's not part of the Old Testament law priesthood. He's a part of the Old Testament grace priesthood. I'll say a bit more about that on Beyond the Notes this week. There's a priesthood. And then finally, number four on your outline, uh, Arabic four, there is a, there is a pattern here. This, this statement in verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. You know, a lot of conversation can be had about, about tithing as, a, as a, a topic we can discuss in giving. A couple of statements I wanna, I wanna help you avoid. Number one, don't you ever think that tithing has its roots in the Old Testament law because this verse is centuries before the Old Testament law. So you cannot say, well, tithing is just the law. Nope, 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 nope. Abram and Melchizedek would raise their hands and beg to disagree. But neither is the Old Testament law of tithing, listen to me carefully, the end-all, be-all standard for New Testament giving. Tithing is a marvelous mile marker on your journey to giving like a New Testament Christian. Because see, if you're passionate about joyful generosity, if you're following Jesus with everything you've got, ain't no way you could ever keep 90%. That makes no sense whatsoever for the growing Christian. Tithing for the growing Christian should be a mile marker in your real rearview mirror that you passed some time ago on your way to understanding joyful generosity. Yes, with the work of the kingdom through your church, but as a manner in which you live. But here we see a pattern is set. All right, 10%. A beginning. And since this is the only priest Abram ever encounters, he gives him that gift that it would be involved in the work of the kingdom, that pattern. Verse 20, that priest said, blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, Abram. It's not your work. It's not your credit. It's not your getting what you deserve. Oh no. You don't want that. Abram got it. 
Roman numeral four, the refusal. The refusal. And the king of Sodom, now he opens his mouth, said to Abram, give me the persons. You keep, you take the goods for yourself. Keep all the stuff you capture. You earned it. You deserved it. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I've lifted my hand, he's speaking of worship. To the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now where have we heard that? Verse 19. El Elyon. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Forget all your zookeeper collection of various Canaanite gods that aren't gods. We sang it earlier in this service. You are God alone. I have raised my hand in worship of the God who is. I don't need reward. I have the blessings of grace. I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours. Lest you should say, because if I take your reward, you're going to say, I have made Abram rich. You are going to slide into my life and take credit with your works-based righteousness, your works-based blessing, your works-based reward. You're going to slide into my life and take credit away from the God who is, who has promised to bless me, who is blessing me, and I will have none of it. I stand here at a fork in the road. Shall I walk the way of undeserved blessing from the God most high who has handed me a victory I could never have won? Or shall I walk the way of, yeah, I did that. And the rewards that go with it. Shall I have what I deserve? Or shall I have the grace of the God most high possessor of heaven and earth? I don't want a shoelace out of your stuff. I will take, no, I love this, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. Apparently some of the guys that were with Abram had eaten some of the food that they recaptured and Abram basically says, please don't ask them to give that back. <laughs> Reasonable. And the share of the men who went with me, I cannot, I cannot receive grace on somebody else's behalf. The guys who with, went, with, went with me and fought in the battle want to get something for their work, that's fine. But as for me, so let Enor, Esco, and Mamre take their share. We sang also earlier in this service, you got no claim on me. The world, the grave, the devil, you got no claim on me. That's what Abram is saying right here. Bera, you evil giver of gifts, you got no claim on me. Everything I have, everything I stand for, everything I desire is tied to the blessing of the one to whom I have raised my hand, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Dear friend, you do not want what you deserve. The wages, the deserve of sin is death. 
and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Eternal death and eternal punishment is what you deserve. And I'm not saying that because I'm on a high horse. I don't even have a high horse. I'm not saying that because I desire to be harsh. I despise being harsh. I'm saying that because that's what love would have you know. Left to your own devices, you are on an eternal collision course with hell. Apart from the undeserved blessing of the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross has paid the price and opened the way. If you will turn from your sin and trust him as Abram trusted him, then you will not see that eternal death you deserve, but instead will become a child of God with eternal life. Oh, trust Jesus. And raise your hand in worship to the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. <laughs>